in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. I've often heard people say that they wish they could go back to the early New Testament days of the church. Um, Saying this kind of thing with a, a longing, as if it was a time when the church was free of the kinds of difficulties and challenges we, we might see today. Uh, sort of maybe marked with a special purity that has never since been known and, and a golden age of, of sorts. And certainly uh, there's some understanding of, of such a sentiment. Uh, we should desire to be um, biblical in whatever ways the early church was. And definitely it would be would have been remarkable to see the apostles in action, to hear their preaching, and to see the mighty works that they did as apostles. However, a lot of times this thinking comes from a rather simplistic and even naive view of the way things actually were back then. If you read carefully the book of Acts, the epistles, uh, Revelation, really the whole New Testament, I guess, uh, Revelation, you see that uh, the church was facing all kinds of different trials and difficulties. And in some ways, it was maybe even more complicated and difficult than, than today. In, certainly in some senses, they, for example, um, you know, in the earliest days, they did not have a completed canon. They did have apostles and prophets serving the church. But, um, but there are all kinds of difficulties. Think of 1 Corinthians and the types of sin they were dealing with within the church Um, There's never been a time at which Satan wasn't raging against the people of God and that there wasn't difficulty in trial. And one of the things, one of the areas in which there was difficulty, in which there was battle, was over the very message of the gospel itself. There were many ways in which this battle occurred, but one of the ways they had to fight this was against this group that has become known to us typically as the Judaizers. We're going to talk more about this group a little bit in a little bit. Um, But what was at stake with this particular group of people and their teaching was nothing less than the grace of God in the gospel. Uh, The gospel itself was under attack by these men and their teachings. Works of law, keeping law, doing our own works, this was smuggled back into the good news as it became, again, part of how it was that they thought men were to try to make themselves just before God. A bit of Jesus, a bit of our works, and together we will be saved. And we'll get into that more in just a moment. So works were smuggled back in, as, or in, I should say, as foundational grounds of one's justification and salvation. And so we see in this battle that, that is... In, in numerous books in the New Testament, we see this, this playing out. And Paul is responding to this, and we see this in Acts and so on. What we see is that questions like, what is the gospel? Or what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? These have always been crucial matters. And all too often have been overlooked or maybe assumed. It's just assumed everybody knows what we mean by a word like gospel or a word like Christian. And these can get, these definitions can become misunderstood 
And it can even be, if it's badly misunderstood, then you end up in heresy. It can be damnable teaching that gets smuggled in. In our own days, over the years, we've seen this in many different ways. This, we're just going to assume everybody knows what gospel means and maybe even not make a big deal about it, have different views of it even. But we must always be on guard for the gospel and for what true Christianity is. We see this throughout the scriptures. And as we come to chapter 3 of Philippians now, Paul admonishes the Philippian church to be on the lookout, and us by extension, to be on the lookout to preserve the gospel, the understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it is, what makes one a true member of God's covenant people. And Paul is going to give us ways of, underst- of, of doing this. Uh, marks of true believers. So let's read chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. And then today we're just going to focus on the first three verses. And then we'll, we'll carry on uh, next time. So Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We're looking at characteristics of true believers that emerge here just from even the first three verses. And the first characteristic is true believers guard the gospel of grace. True believers guard the gospel of grace. We'll get into some details of what the gospel is in a moment. But first, we see the importance of guarding this gospel, this good news. So Paul begins here, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There are a couple of challenges in these first two verses to think through. The first one is is with that first word, finally. It appears, as Paul says, finally, that he's bringing this letter to a close, but in fact, he's really only about halfway through, maybe a little over halfway. And so there are some people who see that word 
And they conclude, and this would typically be your more liberal scholars, some of them anyway, they would conclude that this is evidence that this letter was really just edited. It's kind of a mash of at least two different texts. Just somebody later on came by and, and put these two things together. This isn't original to Paul. And of course, they will, this causes trouble to people who are believing that this is the word of God and inerrant and someone tampered with it and just put a couple of different texts together. But of course, this is not at all a necessary conclusion to make from this word. For one thing, there are zero manuscripts that we have of Philippians that end at chapter 3 and verse 1. So there's no, there's no manuscript evidence that would support that claim that at some point it was just mashed together. And the earliest manuscript we have of Philippians, uh, my understanding, is dated somewhere around the year 200. So that's, that's pretty early. That's pretty close to the time that uh, this would have been written. So there's no, there's no evidence in the manuscripts that it ever ended there. Further, if you were somebody who's so bold as to tamper with the letter and you're just willing to put two things together and pass it off as if it's all one with Paul, uh, why wouldn't you just remove the difficulty that we find with the word finally? If that really means the letter's about to be over and it's not really, you could just remove that um, or, and, and smooth out some of the transition. It's a little bit of a, an abrupt trans, transition to verse 2, look out for the dogs. Um, so typically, someone would, an editor would, would be smoothing that out and making that a little easier for us. So if anything, that there might be some difficulty here with a, an abrupt transition in this word finally is evidence that, of its originalness, that it, that, it, that it is original. And of course, there's lots of other explanations of, of, of why he may have chosen to use this word finally here. Some people argue that Paul was going to end the letter. That was his plan. Perhaps the pen was set down and he ended up coming back to it and he decided, I need to say more and picked it up again and continued writing. That's entirely possible. It's just a reminder. We, we don't, there's a lot we just don't know. And it might be pretty arrogant to just assume that the word finally must mean that this was a composite letter or something like that. Others acknowledge, of course, that the word finally here can indeed indicate the end of a letter. We see that at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. However, it can also simply stand as a marker beginning a new section. So it can just mean in addition. He's got more to say. It can also mean henceforth or from now on, which is how we see it translated in 1 Corinthians 7, 29. I would also just add to this that this chapter... Uh, chapter 3, now begins really the final major topic of the letter. So beginning in verse 1 here and through to 4 verse 1, Paul covers the last major topic. He's going to say more, bring up some new things in chapter 4, but in terms of major issues, this is the last one in which he addresses this issue of the gospel and these false teachers that were threatening it. So he says here, finally, my brothers, he's writing to the church, Rejoice in the Lord. And then he writes, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so this raises yet another question. Uh, what does he mean by the same things that he's writing? Is this a reference to the command to rejoice? Some believe that's what he's saying. Uh, to write the same things to you, that is, as I tell you to rejoice in the Lord, as I write this once again, it's no trouble to me and it's safe for you. But others will say that the same things that he's referring to is what he's about to say in verses 2 and following. 
to write the same things, again, is, safe, is no trouble for me and a safeguard for you. Meaning, at some point, Paul would have written another letter to the Philippians, warning them to beware of the false teachers and to cling to Christ. And so maybe now, as he's about to bring this up again, he's, I know I've said this before, but I'm doing it again, and it's a safeguard for you. Perhaps even uh, this is what he taught them when he was in person. And this is, even if it's his first letter, he's now writing to them the same things he's already taught them when he was in person. And so in this understanding, the safeguard for them would be that as I remind you yet again of the gospel of Christ, remind you yet again to be on guard of those who would corrupt it. This is a, a safeguard for you guys. This is a help to you to be reminded of this. That's certainly a possible and plausible understanding of of this verse. But I do think that when he says the same things, he's referring to the command to rejoice, that he's repeating himself in this command. This is a major theme throughout the letter, this topic of joy and rejoicing. In chapter 2, there's two explicit commands to rejoice, verse 18, verse 28. Also, verse 29 speaks of receiving Epaphroditus with joy. Joy is everywhere. And he's going to repeat it yet again in chapter 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul knows that he's repeating himself, and he's doing it intentionally. And it's a safeguard for his hearers. We might wonder, well, how is rejoicing uh, some sort of safeguard for Christians? And I think the answer to that is when someone is rejoicing in the Lord, which is the instruction here, then they're rejoicing in Christ and in what he has done and what he has accomplished. It keeps the focus upon the Lord. Whereas the errors that Paul is confronting here take the glory away from the Lord and puts the focus back on man and what man is doing and accomplishing. And so one of the safeguards for guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ and the free grace of God in the gospel is by keeping our, uh, making sure we continue to make our rejoicing in Christ himself and what he has accomplished. Again, think of how often churches devolve into just what we're going to do, all the things that we need to do, we need to do this, we need to do X, we want to do this, all the focus becomes about us, and we can lose God's grace in Christ Jesus. But when we focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ and make that our boast, as he will go on to say, that helps us guard the grace of God in in the gospel. And so I would encourage you to do this, to, to, to intentionally, consciously focus yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. Focus upon what God has done for you in Christ. Christ's death for your sins is resurrection from the dead. If you're believing in him, make that your joy. The internal, eternal inheritance that God has for you that is awaiting you. That whatever comes, that is yours because of what Christ has accomplished. And he has sealed that to you. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. This is a safeguard. We'll come back to this when we get to verse 3 when it talks of glorying in Christ. But this understanding of verse 1 makes the seemingly abrupt shift in verse 2 a little bit less intense, maybe a little bit less abrupt. Even so, it might catch us a bit off guard. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Here we have very clearly a call to discernment. The word look out 
means to beware or to be on watch, be on guard for something that's hazardous. And this command is issued three times here. It's clearly a call to be discerning, but it is not just a general call to be discerning, though that's good. As Christians, we want to think rightly about anything and everything we can. We want to be biblically minded in as as much of life as we possibly can. That's good and right to be discerning in all things. But here specifically, Paul is dealing with a matter of primary significance. He is speaking about first order issues, the gospel itself. One way we know this is that in chapter 1, Paul mentions brothers, other Christians, who obviously disagreed with Paul and even had something against Paul, but who nevertheless did preach Christ. And so in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, even though they're preaching with these horrible motives and seeking to afflict him, he would rejoice as long as Christ was preached. And so we said when we were back there, this indicates to us That the gospel of Christ really was proclaimed by these men, even though they were doing it with terrible motives. And so Paul was saying, well, at least I can rejoice in the fact that Christ is proclaimed by these men. But that's not what he says here when he refers to this particular group of people. It's a different tone. It's a different matter. Because Christ, the preaching of Christ, has indeed been corrupted. And so he has rather harsh words for this group. And the group that he's aiming at here is almost certainly the Judaizers. And so before we get into what he means by calling them dogs and evildoers and mutilators, I just want to give a little bit of background to this group. When Christ ascended to heaven and the disciples began to preach Christ, the church that formed was initially very Jewish. You think of the day of Pentecost There were a lot of Jews that had come, even from around, but had come to Jerusalem. And as 3,000 joined the church and and believe, presumably many more would have gone out from there, taking the gospel with them. We think of the, the, the apostles themselves and those who had to flee Jerusalem because of persecution, going and preaching Christ along the way. The gospel was going out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as that happened, more and more Gentiles began to believe. So early on, when it's primarily filled with Jews, some of these matters of their law, the old covenant law, weren't really a big issue for all of them. But as more and more Gentiles get saved, questions arose about what do we require of them? Uh, What do we do with the old covenant law? Is it enough that these Gentiles repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, or must they also become Jews by being circumcised and then keeping the old covenant law in order to be saved? This group was known as the circumcision. It's translated in ESV often as the circumcision party. I think it's helpful. So, for example, in Acts chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, when they heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God, or they had heard that, verse 2, So, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, The circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You didn't demand of them circumcision first. They might have believed Christ, but you didn't demand of circumcision, and you just ate with these men, though they they haven't become Jews. They have not been circumcised. They're not keeping our dietary restriction. 
And as chapter 11 continues after Peter gives his defense, in verse 18, it seems that those with the complaint seem satisfied and drop their case. However, we know that wasn't the end of it. In Acts chapter 15, we read in verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So so there's the issue very, very clearly stated. You cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. In chapter 5, as they're they keep talking about this, verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so there's a council that's convened in Acts chapter 15. And as this council goes, uh, goes on, at the end of it, again, it appears that the matter has been settled. But again, we know it didn't end there. Some men were hardened in their position and continued to insist that a person must become a Jew and keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved and in order to keep their salvation. So what these guys were doing with their insistence on the Old Covenant law in order to be saved is they were making Old Covenant law keeping part of the grounds of one's salvation. They're not even just saying, look, it would be good for you to you know, obey the Lord now that you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. They're saying if you want to be saved, you must do these things. You must keep these aspects of the law. So this is grounds of their salvation. This was part of the means by which you attain salvation and keep your salvation. So you have Jesus' work and your work, and they combine to form the basis of your salvation. And so this is a mixture of of grace and law-keeping. And this this is the main issue. Salvation would be dependent, then, upon your works, ultimately. And so we see this matter arise in a number of places in the Scriptures. We've already seen a few. The book of Galatians is a very significant one, and uh, we, we read a significant portion of that earlier. And so with that in mind, look again at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, the, the term dogs was a pejorative that the Jews used for Gentiles. So dogs were not viewed as man's best friend. Um, and so this is a, a pejorative term for the Gentiles. That is, those who are outside of God's covenant people. They're on the outside, they are dogs. And so when Paul refers to these Judaizers as dogs, he's not just engaging in a childish name-calling. He's using irony. These Judaizers would have viewed uncircumcised Gentiles, even those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, these Judaizers viewed them as dogs. They're they're outside of the covenant. They've got to be circumcised and come inside and and keep the Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be saved. And so Paul is turning this around on them. He's saying, in fact, it's the Judaizers who are the dogs. They're actually the ones on the outside, which would have been an astonishing and wildly offensive claim to those men. He's saying they're the ones, on account of their corrupted gospel, as they've smuggled works in here, 
They are the ones who are on the outside of God's true covenant people. He goes on, look out for the evildoers. This is the same group he's talking about. These false teachers no doubt saw themselves as doing the work of God. And they would have seen themselves as being those who are all about good works. We must do good works. It begins with getting circumcised for Gentile male believers. They're all about works. Though they have a high view of the law, they would claim, after all, we demand circumcision. After all, we require dietary restrictions in order to be saved. And yet Paul says they're actually, they're not doers of good. They are doers of evil. And his third admonition here is look out for the mutilators of the flesh. The Greek word is really just mutilation. So the ESV adds of the flesh. So there's a word play here. The Judaizers claim to be the circumcision, which involves the cutting away of the flesh. But in fact, Paul says, they are the mutilation. In Greek, the words are very similar, which makes the wordplay even clearer. The opponents claim to be the peritome, circumcision, but are actually the katatome, the mutilation. Their insistence on the right of circumcision in order to be saved is actually just a mutilation. It causes an unnecessary physical pain, and far more significantly, their teaching is damning to the soul. It causes spiritual destruction. They are the mutilation. These Judaizers believed that in order to be saved and therefore a true member of the covenant people of God, circumcision and law-keeping was necessary to get in and to keep yourself in. Justification, therefore, depended upon law-keeping. Sure, Jesus saves, but you have to do these things in order for that to be of any use to you. You've got to keep these laws. And so unmistakably, when you boil it down, at the end of the day, the difference between one who is saved and one who is not is that one side has worked for it. They have done what they needed to do. And they would have grounds for boasting. And this is not grace. And this is not good news either. As we read in Galatians, if you want to go that route and try to keep law in order to save yourself, then you're going to have to keep it all, and you're going to have to keep it all with absolute perfection. And that's what these men did not understand. So it may have sounded pious, but it was deadly wrong. They believed that only the physically circumcised could lay claim to the promised blessings made to Abraham, the blessings that ultimately the son of David brought about. But in fact, Paul is pointing out they are the ones on the outside looking in. And the true believers are the ones who guard the gospel of grace. Beware these teachers. When it comes to the gospel of God's grace in Christ, it is a salvation that is freely received and freely given by God. It is actually of grace, not of works. It is received by faith. And this is not a, really a, a secondary matter or open to opinion. This is, this is a hill to literally die upon. And, and, and 
Men and women have literally died upon this hill. This is the core matter of the Christian faith and gospel. It was the material principle of the Reformation, the doctrine out of which it was made, the core. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. The Judaizing era can take many different forms. Any time that works of law become part of the foundation of your salvation. And it doesn't require a complete rejection of God's grace either. Again, it's not that these Judaizers, we might think that they wore something on their face that would you know, just make it obvious, or they had a certain look about their face. They just, it's not that way. They did proclaim Christ to some, in some, to some extent. They believed Christ. Yes, you must believe Christ, but also there's more to it. You can't just receive that freely of grace. You must be circumcised, become a Jew in order to be saved. And so today, it doesn't require a complete rejection of all grace. Very few are going to do that. Some do, but very few will. Oh yeah, of course, God's grace. We need that. But also, there's all this other stuff. Even at the time of the Reformation, it's not that Rome, Rome was denying grace altogether but they were undermining it and this is what Luther and the others came at with a vengeance this is what scripture denies and so this blending of law and gospel together destroys gospel and it brings law down and this is Something to be guarded against diligently. And, and so Paul calls the church to it. And notice here, it's not simply the elders either that are addressed. We know this is part of an elder's task. Acts 20, the Ephesian elders, Paul warns them to be on guard for the wolves. We see in the letters to Timothy and to Titus, this is part of an elder's, the pastor's duty. But here it is also for the church as a whole to be on guard. He's writing to the whole church. Everybody, look out. Be on guard. This is one of the reasons we desire members to come to us. To test our teaching. To open your Bibles. To study the Word. To have your Bibles open. To come to us if there are concerns with Bibles open. We are a church. We are not a top-down CEO led organization. And this is why it's not enough that just some people here would seek to be discerning. Discernment is a mark of maturity. Some will definitely have giftedness in this area, but it's a mark of Christian maturity. And so this is a call here to remain diligent, watching over your own soul, the souls of your brothers and sisters. True believers guard the gospel of grace. Secondly, true believers worship by the Spirit of God. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. So, so the Judaizers, they claim to be the true people of God, pointing to their circumcision as evidence. See the continuity with Abraham and with Moses. We are just the next form of this. 
They claim to be the ones who inherited the promised blessings of Abraham. So obviously, think back, under the old covenant, all males were indeed to be physically circumcised. Babies were to be circumcised on the eighth day, just as Paul said he was here in chapter 3, later on. And converts, male converts, upon conversion, were likewise to be circumcised. And we see this was not just a throwaway matter, either. God was very serious about this law. We see this in a lot of places, but I think of Exodus 4, when uh, God nearly puts Moses to death because his son was not circumcised. Remember, his wife intervened and referred to Moses as a bridegroom of blood to him. It was a close call. The external rite of circumcision was important under the Old Covenant. Yet the physical and external act did also point to an internal reality that was important. Moses also taught not only this external circumcision, but he taught the people the necessity of also having circumcised hearts. Hearts that were remade, purified, cleansed by God. And of course we know... Not all who were physically circumcised in Israel experienced such a thing. They didn't all experience a renewed heart, a circumcised heart. Moreover, we know that not even everyone within Israel understood that that was important. You think about even uh, John chapter 3 when Jesus meets with Nicodemus and he's saying you must be born again. That's what he's talking about, this regenerated heart. You must be made new within And he says to to him, are you not the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? There's a bit of a shot there to Nicodemus. He ought to have known this. This is what circumcision was pointing to even. In fact, this failure to understand this and for the people to have to be true worshipers of the Lord is really ultimately, I think, can be argued it's why the nation went into exile so we know the, the the nation of israel was split into two the northern kingdom was taken off by assyria but then eventually babylon was coming for judah the southern kingdom jeremiah 4 verse 4 this is proclaimed to the people circumcise yourselves to the lord remove the foreskin of your hearts o men of judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And of course, we know that Babylon did come. The wrath of God did get poured out. Jerusalem and the people were hauled away into exile. So one of the shortcomings of the old covenant was that the covenant did not provide this circumcised heart for all of its members. Not every person in Israel experienced this circumcised heart. So along the way, there are prophecies of a new covenant that will come in which all of its members will possess this inward work done on the heart. Perhaps most clearly, we see it in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Every member of this new covenant is going to have this work done on their heart. They shall all know me. Ezekiel 36, 26 explains it like this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. And with the coming of Christ and the new covenant inaugurated in his blood, he said that at the Last Supper, the substance of these prophecies and promises has now arrived. And the old covenant with its symbols and shadows, it has passed away. And one enters into this new covenant, not by an external rite, or marker, not by physical birth, but rather one enters into it by the new birth, the spiritual birth from above. This is therefore a key mark of a true Christian. We have received a new heart and the Spirit of God within us, and therefore we worship God in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said to the woman at the well. By saying this is, we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, he is saying this is the true covenant people of God. And this is one reason why we baptize all who make credible professions of faith. That is, this is why we baptize believers and not infants. This is a fairly typical Baptistic way, Baptist way of understanding this. And so these Judaizers, they were placing confidence in the external rite of circumcision while missing the substance to which it was pointing all along. A circumcised, cleansed, remade heart. The very thing that is provided for all members of the new covenant is one of the things that marks us out. That's what Paul is saying here. This is why he says that the circumcision are those who worship by the Spirit. And as he says elsewhere in Galatians 6, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The need is to be born again. The problems the sinners face are too great to be overcome with a little effort. They're too great to be overcome by even trying a little harder. The heart is desperately sick and needs replacing. This problem cannot even be overcome by righteous laws. Israel had the law of God written by the finger of God handed to them in tablets of stone. And we know how that went. They ended up in exile. The need is for a person to be born again, to be made new within. 
And so even just one point of, of application here, as we think about our present age and present moment, and we think about the unrighteousness that we see around us, and even the trampling of, of good laws that we see all around us and our, this, this movement to try to push back for, for freedom and to call our leaders to rule in a way that is just. I support this. I support this call upon them. But there are some errors that creep in that confuse some matters along the way. Who seem, people who seem to indicate that if we could just get these laws to reflect the scriptures and scriptural laws, then our nation would be in good shape. If we could just get these laws to reflect what scripture says, reflect God's law, then maybe even some would go so far as to say that that will be the kingdom of God. That is a reflection of the kingdom of God. We would have taken dominion and see the kingdom of God reflected in society through these laws. And again, while I support justice and want it, if if you want to protest and make your voice known, I, I personally would support you. I'm with you. But we must understand that even if our laws tomorrow reflect the righteousness of God in every single area of our life, That still doesn't mean that every single person in Canada is suddenly going to have a new heart. The need is to be born again, not merely to know and have the law of God in society or around us, external. We need it written on the heart. And this comes through the preaching of Christ and when the Spirit moves and saves a person in response to that message. And so again, feel free to go for it and Phone, call, email, all of those things. They're good things to do. I'm not discouraging that. As long as we understand that is an act of loving our neighbor that's distinct from the gospel itself, which is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and calling men and women to repent and believe in him. Finally, and I'm just going to hit this point quickly because it's going to be, we're going to cover it more next week because it continues. But finally, the third point, true believers glory in Christ alone. So true circumcision worship by the spirit. And also it says glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Again, we've already seen the command to rejoice in the Lord and how that's a means of guarding against legalism. And it's expanded here. By not putting confidence in the flesh, Paul's clearly referencing circumcision as it was a very concrete act done to one's physical flesh. That someone might say, therefore, I'm clearly saved now. I've done this act. But also, as Paul continues in verse 4 and following, he clearly means confidence in the flesh in a more broad way as well. To put confidence in the flesh is to put confidence in any of our own works as grounds of our salvation. Rather, God's people glory in or boast in Christ Jesus alone. 
As we've read earlier, by works of the law, no human being shall be justified before God. Rather, the sole hope of mankind, and this is the hope and boast of true believers in Christ. Our sole hope is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has secured eternal redemption, that he has done this, as we saw earlier in chapter 2, the eternal Son of God coming to earth, taking a flesh, taking a flesh to himself, adding a human nature to himself, and then coming to be obedient to the Father, keeping the law perfectly on behalf of those he came to save, earning thereby righteousness, and then being obedient to the point of death, right up until death, even death on a cross, where he took the sins of his people upon himself and satisfied the wrath of God as God's wrath was poured out upon the Son of God. There is salvation in no one else. That includes you, that includes me. We don't add anything to what Christ has accomplished. His work, he said, it is finished. There's nothing more to add to that. Your good works do not add to that. We're going to talk more about that if you're here Wednesday. The next chapter of the confession is on good works. We're going to talk about that then. And so as we see as Paul goes on in chapter 3, and we'll, we'll come back to it next time, his boast is Christ, that he would be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is gifted to Paul. It's a gift to him. And so he boasts in what Christ has done. All of his own works... He forsakes to be found in Christ, to have the salvation that comes from him. And so there's a need to come to the end of yourself. To recognize that there's no goodness in yourself that will commend you to God. That any such view, any such thinking, if you think your goodness is going to do it for you, in any way, even just add or help out what Christ has done for you, it puts you on the outside if that's what you believe. That's what Paul's saying here. Deny yourself. Repent of this. Confess your sins to God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him your sole hope and boast. Rejoice in what he has accomplished. Glory in him alone and put no confidence in your own works. You see also where joy comes from this message. Because you've failed and blown it again. Will you turn and look to Christ? That's where your hope lies. You can carry on. You can lift your head. You can keep going. Because your salvation is tied up in Christ Jesus and what he has done. So Paul was not being harsh here as he writes these things about the Judaizers, as if it's some childish fight. He was zealous to guard the glory of Christ Jesus and the purity of the gospel. 
It is truly good news that Jesus has secured redemption and that you do not have to earn or add anything to it. It is a free gift to all who believe in him. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. We deserve judgment for our sins. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So true believers, God's covenant people, are those who boast in Christ alone, who worship by the Spirit of God and guard the gospel of God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we happily confess that we are sinners, not because we're glad we're sinners, but because you have made a way for us to be forgiven. Because there is a righteousness that is not a result of works. There is a righteousness that's ours as a gift of your grace that we just believe and we rest in Christ. We receive it by just trusting, by believing it. Father, I pray that every person here would understand this and would cast themselves upon your mercy in Christ. And Lord, I pray that this would spurn, uh, stir up a tremendous amount of joy in our hearts. Father, if, if any here just feel hardened to the message, I pray that you soften them. That even if they've been in Christ for many years, that the message of God's, your free grace to them, in and through your Son, would be a delight. Father, forgive us for being complacent in this. I pray that you would help us to guard this diligently and, and unapologetically and graciously, but diligently and firmly. Father, may we guard this in our own hearts, in our homes, and as a church. Father, I pray that many more would yet hear this message and believe that your people proclaiming the word in these days all across our country, in churches, on the streets, at protests, wherever they might be proclaiming Christ, that they would preach the new birth, that they would preach your gracious forgiveness. Father, there's sin all around us. And we see the brutality of man against man. Father, we pray that you burden us to share Christ and that many would yet believe. Bless your word as it goes forth across this land. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.